0: That's okay. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I, I hope it was enjoyable and refreshing. It was for the Road Evers. We started our day off with a great turkey bowl. Was anybody here playing turkey bowl on Sunday, Sunday, Thursday? Any of you guys? None of you? First hour people. Okay, so we had a great turkey bowl event with our high school students and a bunch of us older guys out there playing football and lots of fun and uh, just enjoying. Uh, in the midst of craziness, it's good to know just good turkey and mashed potatoes and gravies, is, it still hits the spot. So, well, listen, before we get jump in, if you have a Bible, actually open to the book of Ephesians. Uh, so if you, could, if you don't have a Bible, you need to use one of our Pew versions. Turn open to page, I think it's 917. Uh, While you're doing that, I just want to let you know of a couple things. So you're going to see a couple of changes next week. And the reason I want to talk to you about it is just to kind of prepare you. Number one, and this comes from a lot of our conversations. We had a town hall. We did a survey. and just engaging our people who aren't with us on a regular basis on Sunday mornings for whatever reason. So what we, right now, if if, for example, we have the Family Life Center designated as a mask-only social distancing area, and we heard some feedback that people felt a little bit nervous because it was still indoors. And so what we're gonna do starting next week, and I I really believe we can make this deadline, for those of you who want to be uh, masked only and social distance, the bridge is going to be the new kind of outdoor service area. And it's a really nice area. I think we may have some heat lamps so as it gets colder we won't be, it won't be a problem. So for those of you now now you might be thinking, oh, I want to go out and have service on the bridge. That's fine. You just need to have a mask and practice social distancing on the bridge for our friends there. Okay. That that change won't be such a big deal for you because you probably won't see that. The second change you will notice is this is something completely brand new. It's an idea we came up with. So it could be really great or really bad. One of the two. And as a means to kind of incorporate our friends who are on the live stream, and there's a good amount of our friends doing the live stream, to to kind of simulate that experience that we share on Sunday mornings when we kind of connect with each other, say, hi, what's going on, and, and do that kind of thing. They can't do that and they can't even really do that with each other. So what we're offering, we're going to do this. It's going to be a little bit odd. And let me use the metaphor of a, ga- <laughs> a game show in the, or a studio audience is a better way to put it. We're going to have a, pl- a little table here and a laptop and a couple of hosts. And the host's job is as our friends log on to engage with them, find out what's going on, that, that kind of Sunday morning chit chat, small talk, prayer request. But at the same time, they're gonna engage those of you who are just hanging out in here before the service, right? So a lot of times when you come in here, you end up talking to one another. We're gonna try and simulate that experience for our friends at home and merge those two worlds together. Does that make sense? So for them, all they're gonna see is the couple of hosts interacting and maybe trying to turn the camera to you or whatever you're going to see something completely weird because there'll be two of us talking to a laptop and and we just want you to know what we're doing. And we would love to, you know, have that opportunity to say, hey, Paul Pankhurst is here. Hey, Nick, you want to say something to Paul or Paul had said something, you know, back and forth so that they feel like, yeah, I'm still with my people, even though I can't be with my people. Okay. So when you see that happening next week, just know that's what's going on. And then three minutes before the service starts, our hosts basically wrap it up and then they will log on to the live stream of the service. Does that make sense? Yeah, like I said, it's an iterative process, it may be awesome, it may be not so awesome, but we're going to try it starting next week, so those are some big changes coming up. All right, well, if you have a Bible, this, as as Tom said, we are starting Advent this week. This is the first of six messages that we're going to give in this series, and our series is entitled Picture God's Love, and it's basically an extension of our summer series we did, remember, called One Act of Righteousness, and in that series, we looked at the phrase when we talk about Jesus saving people, that's a massive concept, and if you've been a Christian for a while, you can kind of understand what that means. You say, well, Jesus saved me, or, or I have my salvation or whatever it might be, but what we did this summer is we opened, we, we opened the hood and dove into the mechanics of what that means, and we found that when this, this work of Jesus that Paul in Romans 5.18 just calls one act of righteousness is really referring to nine massive and distinct events of what Jesus did. His incarnation being the first, right? His sinless life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension to the Father, His current session, His intercession, Pentecost, and the second coming. Those were the nine distinct aspects that we just casually talk about salvation. Now, six of those have already taken place, right? All, six of them are done. They've been completed. Obviously, His incarnation, His sinless life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, Pentecost. Two of those are happening right now. Two of the saving acts of Jesus are still taking place, and that is His intercession for you and I and His session ruling and reigning from the Father's right hand. One of those has yet to come. One of those is still yet future, and that is His second coming. And here's the reality. As great as I enjoyed that series, I hope you did too, but events, events are not self-interpreting. Let me, let me try to explain that. What, what I mean is, If any of you are history buffs, you know the difference between a good historian and a bad historian, right? Bad history is they just give you a bunch of dates and a chronological timeline, and that's about it. A good historian, they give you the dates, they give you the information, but what they do is they they fit all of those details in the larger context of the human drama of life and explain why those events were as significant as they were. And that is exactly what we see happening in, in, in kind of in the Scriptures. Do you realize, you look at your Bible, don't lose your place in Ephesians, but if you look at your Bible, about two-thirds of this book is our, our events, our stories, our narratives. Two-thirds of the Bible are events that took place. But those events have to be explained for us to get the significance So, as an illustration, there were many people who stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus died for the sins of humanity, and they had no idea of the significance of what was taking place. So, just because you experience an event, it doesn't doesn't follow from that, that you understand the significance of what took place. And God always works with us, friends, that way. He does something amazing, and then He explains it. And, and He does something amazing, and then He explains it. In other words, God's revelation of Himself to humanity is always in two parts. It's in His words and deeds, or His deeds and His words. That's why, interesting, I love Jesus, because He is the Word in action itself. And that's how God always operates. He performs an action, and then He explains what it is, which is why Jesus is so amazing, because He is the Word of God in action. Let me give you another illustration from our history as Christians to show how important this is. When the the church first began, as the early church began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, the Roman authorities and and the society, the Roman society, really misunderstood Christians. When they discovered that Christians routinely gathered and and broke bread and drank wine, celebrating the death of this man named Jesus… They did not have the framework to understand what was going on. They didn't connect the Lord's Supper to Exodus 24 or Jeremiah 31. They didn't connect it as the ratification of the new covenant that we constantly gather to celebrate. They believe, because they didn't have that interpretive framework, they accused the church of cannibalism. Did you know that the early church was often persecuted? That was one of the reasons the society felt okay to throw them to the lions, because they believed that Christians were cannibals. That's a perfect illustration of how events need the proper interpretation so you understand what's going on. And one of the ways scripture describes the events that we see in Jesus' life and really into the Old Testament are through really vivid pictures. And in our Advent series, we're going to look at six of those pictures. There's more, but we're going to look at six. And they come from all the spheres of human life. Relationships, we'll talk about that one this morning, reconciliation. Relationships, or reconciliation is about enemies becoming friends is what that is. Um, The institution of slavery, we're going to look at that next week when we talk about redemption, that was a significant part of their everyday lives, and Paul saw that as a great metaphor of the human condition and what Jesus Christ did to free us from our bonds, Um, the court of law, right, the battlefield, creation itself, and worship. So, all of those are pictures of what Christ has done on our behalf, and so that's what we're going to be doing this Advent series. This morning, we're going to start with the first one as Christ our reconciler, the one who brings, brings relationships back together again and we're going to have four aspects to it. So today's going to be a bit of a deep dive. So if you're the kind of person that maybe comes to church just in Christmas, good news is you're going to get something very different than you typically get. The bad news is, maybe, is this might be a little bit more of a deep of a dive than you're used to, but that's okay. I think you're going to like it. We're going to look at, number one, the problem, okay? We're going to look at the solution. We're going to look at the, the, the benefits and then the result of reconciliation. So, we're going to look at it from those four angles. And you can see, have you looked at your church bulletin? You can see we barely had room to put all the Scripture verses we're going to look at, okay? So, what we're going to do is we're going to jump in, and what we're doing, friends, is we are building a theology of a doctrine of reconciliation. What that means is, I'm going to jump to four passages of Scripture, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, Romans, and 2 Corinthians. And I'm going to unpack a nuance, and I need you to try to hold on to that because then I'm going to add on to that in the next one, add on to that in the next one, add on to that in the next one, and then we're going to step back and go, okay, this is what the Bible teaches on this topic. Okay, that's how you build a theology. It's a little bit of a stretch, but I know you guys can do it. All right, with that, we're going to jump into the first one, and that is the problem of our reconciliation. And what I mean by this is, what is the problem that humanity has? And there's three words, if you look in the text, we'll see it very shortly. Those three words are, separated, alienated, and strangers. Now, in Ephesians, Paul is talking about the most significant alienation, the most significant separation, the most significant um, ostracization or being a stranger, and that is between us and God. But in the immediate context, Paul is also talking about how this plays out in our relationships with everyone else in the most significant ways. I won't be able to jump into that, but I just want you to realize that the cosmic truths of Scripture always and must play out in the daily reality of our lives. So, Ephesians chapter 2, for context… What I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight the verses that are important to what we're unpacking, but I want to give you the whole context, that way you can go home and read it, and and that's just, you never want to take Scripture out of context, I want to give you the whole context. If you're a note taker, write down Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 19, that's the whole context, but we're just going to zero in on a couple of verses so I can tease this doctrine out. And as we jump in, let me just clearly explain, define, what is this doctrine of reconciliation? So, let me just clearly define what it is. The doctrine of reconciliation can basically be described as the act of God making friends out of enemies. That's a pretty potent statement right there. I mean, if you think about the implications. Reconciliation is the act of God by which He makes friends out of enemies. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Picking it up, at verse 12, admittedly in the middle of one of Paul's thoughts, but I'm giving you that context 11 through 19 so you can look at it later. Pick it up at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How have we been brought near, Paul? By the blood of Christ. Why? For he himself is our peace. Skip down to verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Skip down to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, there's a lot going on here. As I said, Paul is talking about the amazing reality that the Jews and the Gentiles are now one in Christ. Now, for most of us, that doesn't make much sense. But what Paul is talking about here is that the gospel has the ability to wipe out any horizontal distinctions between us, any socioeconomic, any ethnic distinctions. He's saying all of us are in Christ. The the issue isn't what ethnicity you are, what economic status you hold, how much power in the society you have. The issue is, are you in Christ or aren't you? You see, God views the world all either in Adam or in Christ under His just wrath for our disobedience or under His amazing grace because of His Son's obedience. And Paul is saying we are all now one in Christ, reconciled by God. You all know, if you've been listening to me for the last couple of months, been reading a lot of Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, he said it best. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. You see, that's exactly what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 16. And might reconcile us both, speaking of Jew and Gentile, all of humanity, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, what exactly does it mean by killing the hostility? We'll get into that in a little moment. What I want you to emphasize in Ephesians is the situation humanity finds itself in by those three words, separated, alienated, strangers, And that separation, alienation, that stranger that we have vertically affects everything horizontally. In other words, friends, until I'm made right with God, there's no way I can be made right with you or myself. And so Christ dealt with the most fundamental separation and alienation we deal with, and the fact that I am at enmity with God, but Christ killed that enmity, and He brought us one together. Many humanistic psychologists, Rollo May, Carl Rogers, Urban Yalom, James Bugenthal, they'll talk about the fact that as a society, we feel deeply a sense of estrangement, a disconnection, a displacement. They call it homelessness, psychological homelessness. And they say, if you are quiet enough, long enough, everyone feels this presence, which is exactly why they say we are consumed with our distractions and our entertainments because we don't want to face the problem of the howling madness of the human condition. They don't say it this way, but they will say, "We are alone in this universe." Well, they, in a sense they're quoting the Bible, but what the Bible also goes on to say, "And we are without God and no hope in the world." So that, that, that fundamental estrangeness, the Bible's answering, and Christ takes care of it. He reconciles that by killing the hostility. Now. How does he and why is Christ able to do that that 's our second point, so the problem is that we are separated from god we 're alienated from God, and because of that we 're separated from one another we 're alienated from one another we 're strangers to one another. Did you notice here in Ephesians Paul was not satisfied to say, speaking to a Roman colony, they would have understand Roman citizenship he wasn 't satisfied to say, "Oh yeah, you were one time strangers, but but not anymore now you're citizens do you see that here I think it 's in, in um, Verse 16, let me look look at it here. No, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens. But that wasn't personal enough for Paul. He says, you're not just fellow citizens. You're members of God's household. How can Christ be the answer for something so significant? And for that, let's move on to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, just a few pages to the right. Colossians 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 15 and read the verse 20. And this is friends by the way probably one of the most concise most pregnant passages of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It's mind-blowing and we can barely scratch the surface this morning, but let me read to what he says in verse 15 going to verse 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn by the way here's a tip. Listen how many times Paul uses the verb or the word all like he can't hardly contain himself of how comprehensive, how exhaustive Christ is. Listen to how many times the word all appears, okay? He's the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. By the way, did you also pick up how Paul can't barely describe the, the, the majesty of Christ through the prepositions? I know that sounds really nerdy, but just look at that verse. By him, through him, and for him. All of this was done. You combine those two together, and Paul is trying to really pack in as much as he can. Jesus is supreme and sufficient. So, for uh, by him, through him, for him, all these things, verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's pretty cosmic. By the way, this passage gives us probably the best definition of what reconciliation is. You see it right there in verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself, and then he has this comma here, this parenthetical phrase, making peace by the blood of his cross. What is it to be reconciled? It is to have peace restored. What is it to be reconciled? To go from being enemies to becoming friends. Peace just isn't here the absence of violence and war. It is the return of fullness, of wholeness. It is the, the, the Hebrews would word, use the word shalom. It's the same word here. There is a peace, the restoring of good things, of right relations. And how was that peace made? Again, by the blood of His cross. How does He make peace? To use the language of Ephesians 2. How does He kill the hostility? By His death. How does he, in the words of Martin Luther King, kill enmity? By his death. Friends, you see the text there. You see the comprehensive work of the cross of Christ. Do you see in that it is a, it is a multidirectional work? It is upward towards God in that the sacrifice of Christ answers God's right demands of holiness and love for Him. It has a downward in that it defeats all the foes. Did you notice how often Paul was saying, whether heavens, heavens or earth, visible, invisible, rulers, authorities, he's talking about everything. The work of Christ goes upward to God and satisfying God's justice. It goes downward to defeat the foes and it goes sideways to redeem men and women, but it doesn't stop there. Romans 8.20 says it also renews all of creation. Guys, the work of Christ on the cross isn't just so you can feel better because you've been forgiven. It actually renews the created order. That's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, that all of creation is awaiting the day when all the sons of God and the, the, the children of God are revealed through our redemption. That time is not yet. That's what we talked about the second coming. But that's how powerful this work was of God reconciling us to Himself. It is not only multidirectional, it's It's multidimensional. It includes a personal reality. Friends, if, if you know Christ, you were a sinner, right? Romans 5, 10 says we were enemies of God. I was never morally neutral against God. I was never morally neutral. Uh, some of you might have felt you were, I was never morally neutral. I did not like God, I, didn't, I, didn't, I despise the things of God. And the Bible told me I was his enemy, it made sense. But I was converted. If you're a Christian, you were converted. You were a sinner that became a son or daughter. But it's not just an individual dimension, you were brought into a corporate reality called the church. You and I are part of such something such grander than your, our own lives. So there's an individual dimension to it. There's a corporate dimension to it. But according to Colossians, it's more than that, friends. There's a cosmic dimension to this. Do you read what Paul's talking about? Rulers, dominions, authorities, visible, invisible, earth, and heaven. Christ's supremacy reigns over all. and He reconciled us to Himself. So what are those benefits? That should be something pretty significant. That's our next passage, Romans chapter 5. The full context of this, friends, is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We're just going to look at a couple of verses at it. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. What he writes from 3 to 9 kind of unpacks these bookends even more, so I just want to focus on the bookends. Paul says, therefore, Romans 5, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Again, there's that word peace. It shows up in every one of our passages this morning. Again, peace is not just the absence of war. It is the restoration of everything that makes life good. Shalom, right? If you you have any Jewish friends, that, that word has such deep meaning. You have shalom, fulfillment, completeness with God. How do we get this peace? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's a really Christian-packed verse. What I mean by Christian is you can easily read that and say amen to it, but not quite understand what it's saying. So, let's look at it very carefully. Through Him, we have also obtained access. How did we get this access? We get it by faith. What does it give us access to? Grace in which we stand. And that makes us joyful. We get joy because of the hope of the glory of God. Let me explain, show it to you in the different translation that I think is excellent. Here's the New Living Translation. I think they did an excellent job of of interpreting this and helping us understand what Paul actually means. Because of our faith. Because we recognize Jesus Christ is the answer, that He is the King, He is my sacrifice, He is my substitute, He lived the life I cannot live, and I believe in that, and I have total trust in that. That's what faith is. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. That word privilege has gotten some bad traction in our culture. We've heard the phrase white privilege, right? There's a reason that phrase exists, because privilege is something you get and you didn't deserve. And they know, exactly, they know exactly why they use that, because that's what grace is. It is undeserved privilege. Undeserved. None of us deserved it. What we deserve, according to the Bible, is I deserve to be judged by God because of my rebellion and sin. I get to be His son. That's undeserved privilege. Because of our faith, Christ has brought in this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, get this, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. That's a mic drop moment. Now, if you've been a Christian and you've never thought about the fact that one day, the, the reality is you were created, we were created to share the glory of God. We're not just there to go, wow, God is glorious and ascribe to Him glory, although that's true. We were designed to share that glory. Why do you think we are such glory thieves? Why do you think we like praise? Because our fundamental design was to receive that. But because of sin, we think we are the object and all that in a bag of chips. Rather than realizing and rejoicing in the fact that we receive this glory because we are representatives of God, our creator, you say, where, where, where are you getting that from? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. You need to write that down, read it. Humanity was created in whose image? God's image as image bearers. And so wherever God's image bearers were, his glory would be extended. This is why in ancient Mideast cultures, the king, the emperor, always had statues of himself everywhere. They understood, they believed, that where the image of the emperor resided, the king's rule, his authority, his glory extended. They got that because that's what we were designed to do. Wherever there be humanity, God's glory extended. Wherever his image bearers existed, his dominion prevailed. By the way, that's what he even commanded us to do, to exercise dominion. And so what Paul is getting at, but here's the problem, you guys know this, if you know the biblical story, we failed. Adam and Eve failed. They said, we reject you, God. We don't want to reflect or share in your glory. We want just our own glory apart from you. They rejected God. Abraham failed. Israel failed. All the kings and prophets failed. You and I have failed every day. Only one person lived perfectly as the perfect human being, and we know who that is. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, Jesus Christ is the image of God. What Paul is doing there, he's saying, what we were created to be in Genesis 1, and we all screwed it up for thousands of years, every nation, every tribe, every culture, Jesus did it right. And that's why you're either in Adam, or now you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, you want your own glory. If you're in Christ, you share in the glory you were designed to have from the first place. And so what Paul is saying here is that we have this undeserved privilege and we rejoice in that because one day we will share His glory. Friends, that's a mind-blowing thought because we live in a world that we're at best we're glory thieves. At best we just see a shadow of glory and we don't even know what to do with it when we do get glory. It consumes us and destroys us. Right? And and I have nothing against celebrities and and those people, but notice how their lives implode. We were not designed to hold the weight of glory. We were designed to share in it with Him and Him doing the lion's share of upholding that glory. But we get to be a part of it. Look at the the last bookend, verse 10. Paul argues from greater to lesser, if you were His enemies and you were reconciled to God by the death of His Son much more now that you are his friends, you'd be saved by his life. What's Paul saying? Look, if you were his enemy and God gave his son to make you his friend, how much more now that you're his friend will he now provide you everything you need is the the thrust of it. So the problem is that we're alienated, we're separated, right? We're strangers to God and and everything about our society and ourselves admit to that. The solution is the supremacy of Christ. The benefit is, and we get to share in that glory. We get to share in that glory, and it's mind-blowing. So, I just want to look at it this way. How, what did, that, what did that process look like? How did God reconcile people in such opposition to Him, people who have such different values and demands and desires, people who are antithetically opposed to His very nature, people like you and I? Well, this week... Um, I had a surprising insight from every week my family or Thanksgiving we read the Lincoln Thanksgiving Proclamation, so I was re- looking through some of my Lincoln research and I found something that was perfect. apparently, during his uh, candidacy for presidency he had an, uh, Lincoln had an arch nemesis by the name of Stanton Stanton was a a hardened opponent of Lincoln, did everything he could to embarrass Lincoln to degrade him, uh, expose him publicly he even insulted Lincoln based on his physical appearance. Stanton was uh, an enemy of Lincoln to the core. But you know history. In spite of all this, Lincoln won the presidency. And to the uh, remiss of his, of his cabinet, guess who he appointed? Secretary of War. Stanton. And you can imagine his cabinet meeting. They're saying, are you out of your, do you not remember all the things that Stanton said to you in your candidacy? And To which Lincoln replied, of course I remember everything he said. And I remember even more, but as I look across our nation, Stanton is the man we need now. Now, if you know history, Stanton was an invaluable member of Lincoln's cabinet. In 65, Lincoln was assassinated. Of all the eulogies and things said about Abraham Lincoln, it's what Stanton said that rises above them all. Standing near the, the, the body of a man he once hated, Stanton said these words, Lincoln was the greatest man I have ever known. He now belongs to the ages. I never understood his desire to reunify with the South until he shared a belief with me, a tactic I believed he used on me, no doubt. Stanton, do I not destroy all my enemies when I make them friends? That's what God did. He didn't use his regal authority to demand of us to make us grovel before him. He destroyed our enmity by winning our friendship at the price of his son. Friends, of all the religious systems out there where humanity is, is doing everything they can to appease the gods, Christianity alone teaches that it was God who did everything he can to broker friendship with us. And I know, you know, people don't seek the gods anymore, right? I mean, you don't know anyone who, like, praise the Molech or Chemish or Zeus or Odin, right? But humanity is still seeking. Your friends, they're still seeking to be made whole, to be made right, to be secure, to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be successful. You name it. And those hold sway and influence over modern man just as much as any of those old deities did of pre-modern man. But like those gods of old, these ideals are just as fickle. Because even if you get them, they're not enough. Success. How much success is enough success to the the hungry businessmen? Just a little more, right? And when you do have that success, there'll be those who want to take it from you. Approval, popularity, that's an ever-receding horizon, right? You you remember the first time you got a couple of likes and you thought, oh, that's cool, I'm liked. And then you start wondering, how come this person gets more likes than I do? Or how come I only get five likes and not 50 likes? Happiness, that ever-elusive state of being. That once you have it, you're then so paranoid it can be lost from you that your joy becomes more of a vigilance. You don't want anything to take away your happiness, and you're consumed with protecting your happiness until it makes you bitter. So even if you get those things, you have to fight to keep them. And if you fail against those gods, they will not forgive you. You will always be reminded of your failures. You'll never know, do they actually like me? You'll always be battling your insecurities. But Christianity alone teaches us and gives us the confidence that we've been reconciled with God. It's not our performance. He has us as friends. In fact, friends, your worship of God cannot be as full as it is until you understand you have a friendship with God. Your friendship with God fills out your worship with God. And finally, what is the result? That's the benefit of our reconciliation. But is there, what is the result of our reconciliation? And this is our last passage this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll conclude with this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes this. We're going to start it at, uh, go from verse 14 to 19. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, they have a radically different way of looking at the world. This transformation has changed the way they look at everything. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Notice that phrase there in verse 18. All this is from God. It's an important statement. Typically in our world, when you have to get reconciled, there's an offended party and an offender, and usually you get like somebody in between to help broker that. Get, come on, get together and work things out. But that, that, that wasn't the case here. Even though it's clear we were the ones that offended God, God was the one that initiated this reconciliation. God did not wait for us. and We didn't. We, we couldn't and we didn't. So God initiated the reconciliation. As a matter of fact, as we've seen, God also initiated the benefits of our reconciliation. They were provided by Him. This is what Paul means when he says, all this is by God. Even the new creation that you are, it's by God. And God has given to us, every one of us, whether you're a firefighter, whether you're a computer programmer, whether you're a teacher, a housewife, businessman, insurance salesman, whatever you might be, we have all been given the ministry of reconciliation. But what does that look like? Paul addresses that in verse 14. See that right there? This is, what, this is partly what the ministry of reconciliation looks like. For the love of Christ controls us. Several weeks ago, I did a sermon called Gospel and Fear, and I mentioned that fear can control us, and here we learn that something else can control us as well, and that's love. It's really important, then, to fear and love the right things, isn't it? If both fear and love can control us, it's really important to make sure that we fear and love the right things. Friends, what love controls you? Ask yourself right now, what love controls you? Some translations, Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. What love controls you that shapes your behavior? And the reason Paul phrases it that way is because we tend to associate our hearts with love. And friends, whatever controls your heart is going to control your behavior. That's just the way it goes. So, whatever grips your heart, whatever fears, whatever loves grabs your heart, it will shape your behavior. Is it love of money? Is it love of yourself? Is it love of convenience? Is it the love of being thought of well by others? Is it the love of pleasing Christ? Is it the love of God's glory? It can be all kinds of loves. But it's really important to ask that question, because whatever you love, it's going to control your heart, and whatever controls your heart, it's going to control your behavior. And not all those loves will change your behavior in the same way, or shape your behavior in the same way. And some of those loves are in opposition. My love to be thought of well can be in direct opposition for my love for the glory of God, especially as my society and my surroundings grows more and more antagonistic of God, I've got to decide, what do I love more? Do I love God's glory more, or do I love being thought of well by others? It's really important to know what loves and fears grab our hearts. And Paul tells us there in verse 15 and 16 that a Christian sees all of life very differently because of this reconciliation that has taken effect. As a matter of fact, Paul would say that a Christian sees life Christocentrically. In other words, we see everything of life, every reality, through this redemptive grid of reconciliation. And friends, that has application to everything. So, if you're a parent and your child rebels against you, you don't just kind of, you know, um, spank them or discipline them or give them a time out because they're not listening to you. You see this in the larger scope of what God is doing. Your child, you've got to be on a rescue mission. Because your child's rebellion against you is just the sign of a deeper rebellion in their heart. And if you don't help them understand that rebellion, they're going to be coming into a lot of difficult straits because your authority is only representative of God's authority. So when your child loses it and rebels against you, that's a ministry moment. That's not a parenting moment alone. Or you blow your top for the umpteenth time. And you, you, you don't just blame it because you had a hard day or a bad day, if you're understanding all of life through a gospel lens, you realize how deeply rooted your anger is and how profoundly your need of grace is and your behavior it was just an example of that truth. But how often do we lose our temper and just say, well, my boss was on me today or it was a tough day without recognizing this is just my heart overflowing into my life. I need a Savior to save me from this. Or if you do something good, you don't get proud and self-righteous, you actually get humbled and grateful to God because the Spirit is actually working in you, bearing fruit that wasn't there before. All of life, every circumstance and situation is seen through this lens of reconciliation, that God turns enemies into friends, and He's even doing that in your life in those situations. Friends, we have to conclude, but arguing from the greater to the lesser, if God can reconcile the biggest chasm between humanity and Him, He can reconcile any situation in your life. Not only has He set the example, He's given you the means necessary to overcome. I mean, just look in the lives of, of I can't unpack, I'll go into this, but just look at the, the lives of the men who follow Jesus. You got Matthew the tax collector, right, working for Rome, and you have Simon the zealot, Okay, if you didn't know the history here, the Zealots were an insurrectionist group, a terrorist organization, so to speak, trying to overthrow Rome for oppressing the people of God. That was Simon, right? And next to him is Matthew, who works for the oppressing government. And they are brothers together as disciples of Christ. Friends, that's like Candace Owens and AOC being BFFs right? That's like Sean Hannity and Don Lemon being drinking buddies, like, hey, let's hang out, right? But yet, in Christ, Matthew and Simon could put aside the differences of this world and say, we are in Christ. We might view things differently in our former life, but now we see things through a different lens. And you had a tax collector for the oppressor working with an insurrectionist, And they laid those aside. That's the fulfillment of Ephesians 2. And he could be done because of the supremacy of Christ, who who all things were made by Him, through Him, and for Him. And He says, I will lay my, my life down for my enemies to make them friends. And we get the benefit, peace with Him. We get to share in His glory. And now we see life completely different, regardless of what your vocation is and position Regardless of your social, economic, ethnic, educational, all those things do not matter at the foot of the cross. That's what's been given to us, the ministry of reconciliation. Christ, the great reconciler, making enemies friends. Next week, the picture is Christ, our great redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of Scripture. We just tapped the very surface of this. Father, help us to recognize you reconciled us sinners in rebellion against Your grace and Your mercy and Your holiness. You did not crush us, but You did conquer us, and You conquered us by making us friends, sons, and daughters. Father, may that reality shape us the next time we deal with a friend or family worker, a or family or co-worker who fundamentally disagrees with us. Father, recognizing that we can make friends from enemies, We may not be able to see eye to eye on a thousand things, but if we can come to an agreement that Christ is the solution, maybe we can make some headway. Father, our world needs a people gripped by the reality of this doctrine of reconciliation. Father, we pray that we would live it out in our lives, and for your glory and your people's good, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ's community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.